This is Poetry Off the Shelf. I'm Helena Dochroth. Today, the body you control. The British poet and prose writer Kim Moore started playing the trumpet when she was 10 years old. For over two decades, it shaped almost every aspect of her life. Each day after school, she practiced for several hours, took lessons, sold double-paned windows over the phone so she could buy her own trumpet instead of a clunky rental. She played in the brass band and the orchestra, went around to auditions, she taught, and then she quit. In What the Trumpet Taught Me, she writes about what it was like to be so singularly focused, to be driven by one simple goal, becoming better and what it was like then to move away from it and figure out who she was without the trumpet to guide her. I recently sat down to talk with her about what the trumpet taught me, her prose book, which is just coming out now, and also about her poetry collection that came out in 2021, titled All the Men I Never Married. When I reached her at her home in Cumbria, England, she had just been stuck inside for a few weeks. First she had COVID, then her two-and-a-half-year-old daughter, Allie. Yeah, it's not been easy, to be honest. And then it's like she's had a personality change since she's come out of it. She's turned into this devil child. Wow. (laughs) Honestly, before I was like feeling all smug because I felt like I had quite a reasonable toddler, if there is such a thing. And now she's like a normal toddler, like having normal toddler tantrums. And, you know, like this morning, she's, (laughs) she's, she's like a teenager as well, like she... This is my writing room. And she came, She said, I just want some alone time. And she came in here and shut the door. She's not even three. You know? That's perfect. I mean, at least she's good at communicating about her boundaries. Oh. Look, there's that, you know. She definitely communicates, yeah. <laughs> anyway, thank you for then taking the time to talk to me uh, when, you know, you've just uh, had such taxing uh, weeks. No, no, really this, is, this is nice, honestly, because... Um, this is like a holiday, honestly. I went to a That's funeral amazing. on Monday and I was like, this is actually less stressful than <laughs> my actual life at the moment. <laughs> I forgot to ask you to grab both of your latest books, so your poetry collection, All the Men I Never Married, but also your nonfiction book, What the Trumpet Taught Me. Do you happen to have those close by? Yes. Hold on. I'll just find the trumpet book. Um Yeah. So can you tell me a little bit what what kind of music was around in your household? What kind of music education you had gotten before that? What was your general experience with music until then? Yeah, I think my mum and dad used to play a lot of music, but not any, you know, it was like pop music. So my dad was really into the Stones and Pink Floyd. And uh, my mum was into kind of the Beatles and you know kind of pop music I guess so there was always a lot of music played and actually my mum had a massive cupboard full of um, vinyl records and every Sunday afternoon we used to be allowed to take it in turns to choose a single and play it so music was a positive thing in that way and it was something that we all did together but then at school I we had a music teacher who was great who had the started people off on the recorder and then if you were good at the recorder you normally went on to the the violin but yeah even at that age I'd worked out that the violins were not very good or <laughs> I thought the violins sounded horrible when I thought it was the violin I didn't understand it was because the children were not very good at playing the violin 
So we didn't do a lot of music in school other than if you, you know, you were keen and you went to recorder practice. Mm. I wasn't allowed in the choir as well, although she set up, this music teacher set up a school choir and um, everyone auditioned because everyone wanted to be in it because you got out of class. But um, me and this lad whose voice had broken early were the only ones not allowed to, to go in the choir. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm laughing about it now, but that really kind of scarred me. Like I didn't sing for years and years because I thought, oh, I can't sing. And I can't sing very well. But um, that kind of, that really informed my teaching later on when I became a music teacher. I thought that's like my bottom line. I don't want to put anyone off doing music. That should be, your, you yeah. know, your bottom line. And even as a poetry, teaching poetry as well, like don't put people off writing or being creative. That should be your your thing. Mm-hmm. I thought maybe we can just start with an excerpt. Is that okay? Yeah. It's that little bit on page 14 about the Rocky theme song. Yeah. I stay behind after junior band rehearsal to listen to the senior band. They play the theme tune to Rocky. I don't know it's the theme tune to Rocky. I think it's the most profound and beautiful thing I've ever heard. I have goosebumps on my arms. Although it's not the staccato fanfare of the cornets at the beginning, but the entrance of the lower brass that makes my heart lurch. At some point in the piece, it feels like the music turns. It's at this point I understand what yearning means, although I don't have a name for it, this feeling, this longing. Later, I understand this was a key change. But this is 1992. I'm 11 years old and falling in love. Yeah, I really, I really love this excerpt. Um, how do you think that you got to pick the trumpet or the cornet in the beginning? It was just random because I remember I was 10 and the teacher said, who would like to play a brass instrument? And I just put my hand up because I volunteered for everything and um, I didn't <laughs> even know what a brass instrument was. Me and my sister and a couple of other kids were chosen and um, and then I just really liked it because it's... I don't know, I, I took it home and practised. So they had like these old smelly school instruments. If you've ever got an old brass instrument out of a cupboard, you'll recognise the smell. It's just very distinctive. And I, I went home with a euphonium, first of all, which is probably like a, well, I'll, I'll get shouted at by brass players, but imagine like half the size of a tuba or a bass. Mm-hmm. It was a bit of an escape for me as well, going to the band, because I think all the way through school, we both got bullied quite badly. But at the band, we were one of the cool kids. We were... You know, it was like an escape from all of that kind of playground stuff at school. There was no kind of bullying or arguing. Everyone everyone got on. And do you think that the bullying was just kind of a, a normal part of school, I guess? Or were you two particularly singled out in any way? Um, we went to quite a rough school. It was oh, It was quite rough when we went there. It's better now. But now I look back and think it's really shocking, like what was, you know, we had teachers taking us home in their car because they couldn't guarantee we would be safe on the way home. I remember being locked in the drama teacher's office once because there was a an older girl who had been expelled already, but she was kind of rampaging around the school with a piece of wood. And <laughs> honestly, it's I, mean, I laugh about it now, but it was um, it was pretty bad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's something that I found also remarkable about your book that you weave in this whole class dimension. Can you give me an example of like when you first realized like, oh, there's there's this dimension to it that keeps uh, being pointed out to me? I think um, I wouldn't have articulated this at the time, but the very simple 
difference between the trumpet and cornet when I was in terms of classes I could go to a brass band and get one for free or we paid 50 pence a week subs or something but there was nowhere to go and get a trumpet for free so if you wanted to play the trumpet you would have to buy one and um, I don't know a beginner trumpet now you can get one for probably a hundred pounds but they've come down a lot you know they were probably maybe three or four hundred pounds back then which would have been completely out of reach for my family and families like mine so the brass band was a place I could go and get an instrument and you get the tuition for free as well and you get a uniform for free it's all provided for you so I didn't understand the difference really until I when I went to A levels and I started with a different teacher who was a trumpet teacher and started getting ready to audition for music college and he explained to me look the trumpet's more flexible you can play it in lots of different groups but by that point you need like a a £2,000 instrument, so how am I going to get one? So I borrowed his trumpet and then had to go and get like part-time jobs to save up for an instrument. And my sister was the same, but she was even worse because she went from tenor horn in the band or giving for free and then she got this French horn teacher and just fell in love with the French horn, which is an even more expensive instrument to buy. But And then we started playing in orchestras, which were different again to brass bands. And I remember there was a moment... I don't think I write about this in the book, actually, but when I first went into the orchestra, the other trumpet players who were all boys, I remember them taking the mickey out of the way that I talked because of my my accent was really um, common compared to, to where they'd brought up because we were like in the middle of Leicester and they came from the villages on the outskirts. So I remember immediately feeling kind of self-conscious and realising, oh, there, there is a difference. Uh-huh. And how old were you at that point when you first joined the orchestra? Um, I would have been 16. Aha. Uh-huh. That's so interesting to me that that is relatively late, right, to be made aware of, of that kind of difference. I mean, it sounds to me like what you're saying is that before that time, sure, there was a practical consideration of like, well, if I don't have the money to buy this, you know, 300 pound instrument, I'm going to go with this 15 pence uh a week or whatever it was, one. That's like a practical consideration. But the way in which class is kind of beyond the practical, you know, like the way in which it marks, I don't know, the way you dress and the way you hold your body and the way you you speak. And, you know, we have all these, we're so sensitive to this, right, as human beings. It's so interesting to me that this really dawned on you when you were 16. Mm, I think as well, because at the time I wouldn't have thought, oh, I can't have a trumpet So I'll get a cornet. It wasn't presented like that. Like the teacher just said, go to this band and get a cornet. So I was never given the option. But there was probably like other times as well, like me and my sister went, entered into a rotary duet competition and we won. And then we got asked to play at this big dinner. And it was a really kind of fancy 10 course dinner or something. And we were stood up at the end and, you know, the rotary people were lovely, but that felt like going into a different world and like we didn't belong and I could see that my mum and dad felt very uncomfortable yeah, there yeah. as well. But up until that point, all of my music education had been in brass bands and mm-hmm. um, with people that probably very like us in terms of background. So it had never really come up. Yeah, there's a there's an excerpt that I thought was really beautiful in like how subtle the way is that these things were kind of communicated to you, you know, without ever speaking the words sort of explicitly. Uh, it's on page 40. Yeah. Um, My A-level music teacher tells me I'm not good enough to go to music college. I don't tell my parents or my trumpet teacher that she said this. I know she doesn't like me and doesn't know what to do with me or my twin sister, that she can't believe we've never been to an orchestral concert 
or visited an art gallery. She doesn't understand why we've never sung in a choir, why my instrument doesn't belong to me. She doesn't understand brass bands and says the brass band is a waste of time. I don't tell my parents that either. Yeah, I thought this was so moving because you keep repeating, I don't tell my parents that, you know, Mm. as if you're trying to protect them from this thing that you know is really about them in a way. Mm. Um, How come you remember this so well? Is that something you wrote down? Is that just something that marked you? Why do you think that stayed with you? Mm, I think I never never wrote it down. And um, I think that point of... I knew I had to protect my parents from... Well, I, I knew that if, at the time if I told them, they would have come down and shouted at her. <laughs> and that wouldn't solve it. So it's like realising your parents can't solve everything for you. This is something they cannot fix because it's mm-hmm. kind of indelible in you. It's something that, that she's seen. And now, like looking back on it as a teacher, I guess she was trying to direct me, I suppose, and say, if you want to do this, then these are the things that you need to do. But they were kind of impossible things a lot of the time but yeah it really it really hurt me because I was obsessed all I wanted to do was go and play the trumpet but I didn't understand then that being a musician is more than just performing which is actually all I wanted to do I just wanted to play the trumpet I didn't really listen to classical music or even listen to other trumpet players I just wanted to stand up and play and and practice on my own so yeah. Did you ever talk about this with your twin sister? Yeah, well, when I wrote this book, she said, did she really say that to you? And I said, yeah, did she not say it to you? So I didn't even tell her at the wow. at the time. But my sister was on a slightly different trajectory because she was playing French horn, which is a much rarer instrument. There was less French horn players anyway. And mm. she's always been a better musician, naturally, I think. I've had to work hard to keep up with her. So um, our A-level teacher didn't say that to her because it wouldn't have been true. She was good enough to just get into music college. So she was fair in that way. Like, I I think it was right what she was saying now, but it was very painful to hear it at the time. Yeah. Is your sister a musician still? Um, She still plays, yeah. She went to a conservatoire and did a degree, then she did a post-grad and she played semi-professionally, but then she kind of, we've both kind of, um, uh, I don't think she would mind me saying that um, there's been kind of self-sabotage go on because she was doing really well with her playing and then, kind of moved away from London. Moved away from the opportunities, you mean? Yeah, yeah. She met a bloke and then moved up here. And now she looks back and she says, I really threw it away because she was depping in in like West End shows and things and being offered some really good opportunities, but didn't really see it at the time. It's interesting that you describe it as self-sabotage. Is that how it feels for you, the the walking away from it? Um, I think for me... I don't think I've got the right temperament to be a musician and it's taken me a long time to realise that. But yeah, at the time, like I was at music college, I was told by various teachers that I could make it and I was good enough and I never, fought, I, never I didn't chase the opportunities. I didn't kind of go for it in the way that I should have. But now, like I'm older, I look back and think I don't think I have the right temperament either because I care too much. Like when I perform, I get so like het up and worried like the perfectionist part of me comes out too much whereas with poetry I can just I know that if I write a bad poem even if it's a truly terrible poem I can just write a better one tomorrow or I can scribble the line out whereas trumpet playing for me it feels like if I play out of tune in the messiah 
everyone will know and I'll be known forever as the trumpet player who played out of tune in the Messiah, which is ridiculous. Like when I say it, it sounds ridiculous, but that's what I'm telling myself. So for me, poetry was like, oh, it was just such a relief because I, I can scribble things out. I can delete them. I can um, I can even disown them. Um, and you can still be a good poet and write a bad poem. Whereas I don't know if you can do a bad performance and still be a good, I suppose you can, but um I mean, writing this book has been really interesting because it's it's been like a form of therapy almost. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I was just going to ask that, you know, like, it, I mean, interesting to me because I always thought that perfectionism is a trait that you carry wherever you go, you know, like that it's not, it, do, it, it doesn't discriminate between this activity that you take on and this other one. Can you speculate about what, what is the difference or what does it feel like inside you when you get up to play the trumpet and when you you know get down to write a poem what's the difference um i think with a poem i feel more in control of everything so i'm in control of what i put out into the world as well so when i'm writing uh-huh. i can put all of those voices those kind of critical voices aside and just write and then i get to the editing and i find it actually I always would normally read a poem out at a reading to try it out before I would publish it anywhere so I can hear it on the air and I can feel what it feels like in my voice and my body and if there's flabby bits, I call them, I can hear the energy in my voice going down and I think, wow, I've got to cut that line. Um, The steps in poetry as well can often be quite communal so I can take it, Mm. I'm in a group of friends that we share poems once a week or we try to write a poem each week and get feedback from each other and it's yeah. an equal relationship, you know. We're but we're all published writers. We're all we're writing at d- different types of poetry, but we can offer feedback on that equal playing field. Whereas any feedback I ever got on my playing was always from like a an expert or a master. Um, you didn't get feedback from your colleagues because you're actually competing against them for gigs, right? So you don't want to be oh, yeah. like showing up, you know, letting your weaknesses be seen so your feedback's always from and I'm terrible with experts like I'm you know if someone's an expert I just do what they tell me to do and I don't think it stops me thinking whereas poetry I have to I can keep thinking even while I'm editing and making it better so and then I publish it and I'm in control and you know sometimes I might publish a poem in a magazine but it won't make it into the book because I've changed my mind about it and that's all part of the process of writing and I don't feel Obviously, I want the poems to be as good as they can be, and I work hard on them, but it doesn't get into my heart like trumpet playing does, even though, you know, I love poetry more, I think, than trumpet playing. I love them in different ways, but um, but trumpet playing feels completely like there's always some mystery, and I think maybe it's because the body is so heavily involved and you can never be in complete control of your of your body. Mm. Um, obviously some musicians are you know amazing musicians are in control and they can produce those performances time after time but I'm not I'm not at that level I'm like a good amateur or a really bad (laughs) semi-professional if I'm in practice so yeah and it's such a you know you're putting your breath into it you know and um, you can hear whatever you put in comes Mm -hmm. out and um, I think before as well like I've so through writing this book I've been practicing again because I've been starting to get invitations to play so and writing the books reminded me how much I love it. And then I've started to be a lot more kind of tech. I think when I was practicing before, it was like I was in this mad panic for 15 years of I've got to get better, I've got to get better without slowing down and thinking, right, well, what actually is happening with my embouchure? What am I doing? So now I practice in front of the mirror and I record myself and I've been putting like 
practice videos up on my personal Facebook with mistakes in to get over this performance anxiety because I'm like well I'm not professional anymore so it doesn't matter yeah. if I make mistakes and then I'll put another one up doing exactly the same piece in a month so I can hear the difference so I'm kind of forcing myself to perform mistakes to so I can tell myself the world isn't going to end like um, you know people aren't going to be really disappointed because you've you know people don't care they've got their own lives Last year, Kim Moore published her second poetry collection, titled All the Men I Never Married. In 48 numbered poems, she investigates her encounters with misogyny, the man sitting opposite her on the train who won't let her read her book in peace, the leery cab driver, the stalker ex-boyfriend, the violently abusive ex. Which is also why I want to give you a heads up. One of the poems we read and discuss is about a near-sexual assault. It's not graphic in the body parts kind of sense, but it is, at least I found, upsetting. So please do what's right for you. Okay, so now here's the rest of my conversation with Kim Moore. Well, I feel like it's kind of a perfect segue to go on to your latest collection of poetry called All the Men I Never Married. And I was just wondering how you got the idea for that book. Yeah, it was after I, f I finished my first collection. And then I always assume everyone else has this, but maybe they don't. I have like a pit of despair that I fall into every time I finish. <laughs> I say every time. I've only, this was book two. So after my first collection, fell into this pit of despair that I'm never going to write another poem again. And then just for a kind of joke to myself, I thought I'm going to write a list of all my terrible ex-boyfriends. <laughs> which became uh, number one, All the Men I Never Married, number one. And then I really enjoyed writing it. And then I thought, oh, I could write a poem for each of them. So it didn't actually start off as being, I'm going to write about misogyny. But as I started to write those poems, I started to notice that that's what I was writing about. And then um, I went to, it was the year Claudia Rankine won the Forward Prize for Citizen. And that just, I went to the reading at the Southbank Centre and it just completely blew my mind and changed the way I thought about racism and my kind of complicity in it as a structure. And I thought, wow, poetry can do this. Poetry can be transformative. This is amazing. So then I thought, could I do that about sexism? Could I write poems about sexism that could have even a little tiny bit of that effect, which feels like a really grandiose thing to say, hmm. but... I started to then think, well, right, okay, let's look back and think about the things that I've experienced. So I started writing them and started to realise that a lot of the time I didn't know why I'd remembered those moments again. And it was mm -hmm. writing the poem made me realise why I'd carried that moment for so long. Yeah. Have your parents read the book? Yeah, yeah. And they come to my readings sometimes as well. What is that like for them to read these poems, these anecdotes? Yeah, I think some of them they were fine about, but there was a few poems in there where they were really upset and um, they said, I wish you'd told us at the time. And um, yeah. the poem about being at a party and nearly being kind of coming very close to being assaulted. And that one really upset them because they remembered that incident. They remembered the party because I came home really, really upset. Um, 
but they didn't know exactly what had happened because you know I was 17 and you don't tell your your parents yeah that so I think they yeah there's some poems in there that really upset them and my dad's quite old-fashioned and we've had great conversations about well not great but challenging conversations that I feel like he's moved his thinking because of reading the poems um, what do you mean he's quite old-fashioned and he's moved us thinking? Well, you know, he'll say things like, <laughs> he'll probably kill me for saying this, but I remember we were coming out of the pub once and someone was walking past in a short skirt and my dad said, and they wonder why things happen. And I was like, Dad, how dare you? And I just went off on one and like yeah. shouted at him. Yeah. And then he was, and I was like, would you say that if I'd gone out in a short skirt? Da, da, da. Uh, what would you do? And he was like, I'd want to kill them. And so... You know, yeah. we had a really good conversation about victim blaming then, which I think for me, that's the point of the book that it's not you can't just say, oh, it's horrible men that do these things or or say these things. It's men that I love. It's men that I'm best friends with. And that's where the conversations have to start as well. It's not I think that's why sexism or anyism is hard, because we can't just box people off and say, oh, it's the bad people that do those things. It's people that we live with and that is our family and our husbands and yeah and what is so interesting about it is also that of course because it's all so close this misogyny this kind of victim blaming we also internalize it because that's how we were raised uh and and there, a, a lot of your book is yeah makes that explicit too you know the ways in which you shame yourself or you doubt yourself or you think well maybe I shouldn't have you know led him on you know all this mm. uh, I, I was wondering do you want to read that uh, that poem about you being nearly assaulted or is that like just not not right uh, for now or um, no I can read I never read it a reading so it would be yeah um, I just avoid it <laughs> yeah yeah um, But yeah. do you feel, because really there's no, I don't want to make you read something where you're like, leaves a bitter taste in your mouth or, you know. No, no, it's fine. How... And actually, like, that's the interesting thing about, well, one of the interesting things for me about writing, like I remembered that moment, but I didn't understand why I'd remembered it for so long until I wrote it down as a poem. And I was calling in that sexism in my mind. And then when I wrote it, I thought, God, that's not sexism. That's like sexual assault. That's really bad. That could have turned. And it was the poem that made me realize how how um awful it was um and that was something I was carrying around and I just kind of boxed off in my mind so I think that's that act of putting the white space of a poem around it it means you can't look away actually um I read a lot of um Jonathan Culler when I was doing my PhD and he talks about the lyric convention of significance that whatever we put in a poem becomes significant and you know I've played around with that throughout the whole book um I can put these little moments in and they become the size that they are rather than being minimized, which is a coping mechanism. That's how I've um, how I've coped with it. So I don't read that poem out loud because I don't want to drop a near assault into a room of people that I then have to sign books for. But it doesn't. It's not a painful. Mm. The pain is kind of in the poem and it's it's kind of safely locked yeah. away. Yeah. yeah. Um. Well, let's get to the poem so we can uh, talk about it. Um, before you read, can you tell me what, because an American audience is going to have questions about this. What is this, uh, you Zulu warrior, what is that about? Oh, well, I, I think it's, um, it's a rugby chant that, I mean, this you've got to remember this is the 90s as well. So it's probably like, 
I'm guessing it's really racist. <laughs> it's a really yeah, racist. Yeah, that's why I chant. was like, can we just? <laughs> yeah, 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 um, yeah. So it's it's like a chant that you drink that you you chant while you're drinking beer, like a you know, like a beer drinking game. No, I did think about when I put it in, but it was that it's like the whole atmosphere of a rugby team. So it's a rugby team party. Mm. Um, right. All the men I never married. Number four. His dad handing out shots, bright green liquid sloshing over the rim onto my wrist, steam on the kitchen windows and the living room full of bodies sitting in a circle, his mother nowhere. Get him down, you Zulu warrior. Get him down, you Zulu chief, chief, chief. Follows me. The singing, the dull thump of a bass, the staircase bending and swaying, Far away bathroom, my hand on the banister to keep myself here, inside my body, inside this house. There's darkness to my left. There he is, on a bed, in the dark, rolling a joint. Hey, babe. I liked that word on his lips, his friend at the open window, letting smoke slip out into the night. It was good to sit down. First I was there, now I'm here, on the bed, on my back. A naked woman, blue-tacked and glossy, stares down from above. Then the weight of him, on top of me. At first it's funny as I try to get up. His knees on my wrists, his hands on my shoulders, that panic in my belly. I'll remember it as long as I live. The friend coming towards me, a hand on my breast. The laughing, both of them laughing, my knee into his groin. He topples sideways, and I'm up and out of the room and into the night. And the dark asks, why were you there in the dark? And the wind asks, what were you doing upstairs? And the moon asks, why were you wearing that skirt? But my body, my body asks nothing, just whispers, see. I did not let you down. I did not let you down. I did not let you down. Thank you. That ending is really uh, powerful. Um, yeah, I mean, what I thought was so uh, interesting to you about this poem is, you know, you end with all those questions that are so uh, so much a part of our society, so much a part of our own psyche, because we are a part of society, that you can almost attribute them to the dark, the wind, the moon. You know, they, they seem to be almost so eternal, you know, such fixtures of, well, that's what it is, you know. Uh, the dark asks, why were you there in the dark? The wind asks, what were you doing upstairs? The moon asks, why were you wearing that skirt? Um... I love those lines about the body. Uh, my body asks nothing, just whispers, see, I did not let you down. Um, but the way that it starts is something I want to talk about with you. Um, his dad handing out shots, bright green liquid sloshing over the rim onto my wrists, and then a little bit further down, his mother nowhere. I'm interested in that, you know, like this awful thing happens this board does something totally as you say it's not just misogyny it's sexual assault 
him and a friend. And he does it at home with his dad downstairs kind of creating the the vibe for it or whatever, you know, mother nowhere to be seen. Um, how was that something that you realized at the time? Or is that something that came to you that that you saw that when you sat down to write the poem? When did you see that? Oh, the dad actually <laughs> kind of plays a role here. Mm, um, I think I noticed when I went you know 17 I was 17 years old and I walked in the house and I th I remember thinking god this is weird because my mum and dad would never be having this drinking in the house and loads of tea you know there was 50 probably teenagers all getting drunker and drunker it was just and I remember thinking this is but you know when you're 17 you just think wow this is really cool I'm getting alcohol um so I was already kind of you know, now looking back as an adult, I think, well, that's a really bad sign. So it was right in the poem. I remembered, God, I remember his dad, you know, it all kind of came back to me through the writing, the writing of the poem. And the questions that you talk about at the end, I've put them, the moon and the wind and the dark saying them because it was, I didn't want to kind of blame my parents for, um, you know, because I, I think, I, I vaguely remember my mum saying, well, why did you go upstairs at a party mm. when I came home upset? And I don't want the poem to be about me blaming my mum because actually that's that's not what the poem is about either. It is about this being embedded in society and I was probably saying that to myself way before she said it. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, because that is also something that you state explicitly at the beginning of the book, um, you know, this this way in which you decided to see what would happen when you stopped minimizing these kinds of things, you know, and the minimizing is something that I think all women do just as a matter of survival mentally, you know, like you cannot dwell on all of these things because you just go mad. Um, and yeah, you have this... Um, Epigraph by the feminist writer and scholar Sarah Ahmed. The past is magnified when it is no longer shrunk. We make things bigger just by refusing to make things smaller. And I'm wondering what that process has been like. Like over the course of writing this book, what was it like to no longer shrink all of those instances? It felt really freeing and like um, I'm not a very rebellious person by nature. I, I like to do, <laughs> I find it much easier to do as I'm told a lot of the time. I definitely like to please people. So I liked, you know, I, it, performing the poems has been really interesting journey for me because they've been challenging for some, some members of the audience and they, you know, I get kind of extreme reactions from lots of women coming up to me and saying, that they recognise these experiences and they hadn't thought about it that way until now, but I've articulated something and now they're remembering this or they're remembering that, which is, you know, like really beautiful moments of kind of solidarity and um, recognition. And then I also get kind of quite defensive reactions to the poems um, and learning to deal with that has been part of the process of writing the book. And I think that's why it took me kind of six years to publish it because I kept most of it's been written for a couple of years, but I knew I, I wasn't ready. I had to keep practicing, you know, if I met with defensiveness, not to then jump to defensiveness as well, because then we'd just end up in a kind of impasse. So 
you know, like I had a, a friend, and again, a, a man who, who was a friend and a poet say to me after reading that poem that I've just, the, the number four, he said, oh, that made me feel guilty for being a man. And I, oh, I immediately, sorry. Yeah. Yeah. I immediately felt like really angry, but instead of saying that makes me angry, I just went, oh, I'm sorry. I immediately jumped to apologize and like pacify, but I couldn't work out in the moment why I was cross. And I had to go away and write about it, not poetry, but just write critically about it and think, right, what does it, you know, I found this great quote by Audre Lorde, which I'm not going to be able to remember. But she's talking to white feminists at a conference and she's saying guilt is not an appropriate reaction to my anger. And basically you can you can have it back sort of thing. That's and funny. I think that man meant well. He was coming from a, a good hearted place, I think. But he was giving me his guilt to deal with. And I immediately went, oh, OK, I'll deal with it. But yeah, so it's trying to work out well, what is a better reaction. And um, a friend of mine said, you know, just next time say, that's interesting. What are you going to do about it? Gorgeous. And that was just, you know, she's a, been a feminist for a long time. But just talking about having those conversations with women and trying to unpack, well, where did my anger come from? And what can I do with that that's positive rather than just saying, oh, pee off and ruining a friendship, which I didn't also didn't want to do. Um, it was the writing the poems was actually really freeing and um, I, I kind of enjoyed it like thinking back to these little moments and just thinking well why have I carried that moment with me and what does it mean and what did it teach me at that time that I've kind of internalized but then performing them was like another kind of learning as well um, yeah but that is something that I found so interesting too like the ways in which um we as a society keep perpetuating this behavior, this reality that women then have to live in. Women and men do this, you know, perpetuate this. You know, when we raise kids, like there are quite a lot of mothers and fathers in this collection. For instance, there's the one poem, like it starts with like that little reference to Otello, Desdemona, Iago. And then there's also that line about the mother. Uh I was wondering if you can read that poem and we can talk about about the mother. Um, it's a poem on page 38, number 23. Oh, and maybe for people who don't have their Shakespeare fresh in mind, can you just give a quick, the quickest summary oh, of God. like, what is that story? <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, oh, I'm going to completely sweep this up. Um, yeah, so Othello and Desdemona are married and basically Iago stirs trouble doesn't he between them and convinces a fellow that Desdemona has um two-timed him um right and then a fellow kind of flies into a jealous rage and and kills her um and I guess you know when I was at school learning about this play it was it was all about um you know you know Desdemona was a, an innocent victim and Iago was a terrible stirrer and uh it was almost like Othello was driven to it and it wasn't really his fault. He just lost control. Right. Um, he was driven to jealousy. And of course we do terrible things when we're jealous. That's not our fault. That's yeah. just the jealousy. Yeah. yeah. Right. Okay. okay. So all the men I never married, number 23. It didn't really help the story of Othello and Desdemona and Iago and poison in the air. And though our teacher taught us about poor Desdemona, bad Iago, Othello escaped almost blame-free, possessed by jealousy, driven into a state. So when my ex became my stalker, all the boys in class ignored me, and every lesson he looked through me until the evenings when he was drunk and in a nightclub, and then he'd ring and start to cry and try to find out where I was or where I'd been, asking why I wouldn't listen, why I'd stopped picking up the phone. 
Sometimes I answered it with silence, imagined him alone, listening to my nothing. That year of A-levels, I got myself a stalker and the police said, aren't you flattered? In the station, there was laughter at the 40 phone calls every day for weeks. He said that I'd agreed to be with him forever and then I'd changed my mind. What could he do but become my stalker and wait till darkness fell and slash my father's tyres or call fire engines to my house so there was nothing catching fire? When my ex became my stalker, he convinced my mum to let him in, then locked himself inside the bathroom. It felt like I'd let him win, even though it finished with him in a police cell because of texts he'd sent with threats and words like kill and guess what happens next. And so the police kept him overnight to think about his actions and rang his mother, who had no idea how any of this happened. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, the tone in this poem is so... Uh, it's you're, you're like a scalpel, you know? Uh very, very precise and very rational. I thought that about a lot of, I mean, the whole book, the precision of it is really thrilling. Uh, the precision about things that we, most of us, never really think about with any kind of rigor because it just feels like too much trouble and painful and uh, and annoying. Uh, so it was really thrilling to see that kind of precision about all the parts of it, you know, the parts of... Uh, he said that I'd agreed to be with him forever and then I changed my mind. What could he do but become my stalker? <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm laughing. This is not funny at all. But, you know, <laughs> the, the kind of, you know, ironclad logic of it. Yeah, I actually wrote this as a joke as well because this guy, I mean, not all poems have to be true, of course, but this guy, like, sent me a friend request on Facebook and I was like, are you actually kidding me? Like, in the middle of writing this book and I was like, right, you're getting a, you're getting a poem. <laughs> And of course, you know, what do you call it? Just ignored the friend request. And it was kind of a joke in my head. I thought, God, I hadn't thought about him for years. And then he popped up and I thought, God, that was absolutely mad. Like what he did, you know, through the writing of the poem. So I was writing it in that kind of rhyming couplet and that strong rhythm because it was a joke to me. And then as I started mm -hmm. to write it, in fact, it was, I performed it a reading and I thought it was a funny poem. <laughs> And nobody laughed. And I was like, God, this is really actually really dark. Um, yeah. So again, it was yeah. the poem, writing the poem made me realise that it was really bad. And, you know, since then, I've, I'm working with um, a project through university with um, turning testimony of domestic violence victims into poems. And um, wow. also the testimony of families of victims who didn't survive. And the stages that you go through for a domestic homicide, they're always the same. And that was that's like number two or three. You know, his behavior then was going up the steps. And, you know, early intervention is really proven to, to work. But yeah. I don't know if the Sarah Everard case yeah. was... A 33-year-old woman last year was stopped by a, a, a police officer. And then he basically kidnapped, raped and murdered her. Yeah, I mean, for, for me part of the kind of trust in the police was never really there because of reactions like that. Um, stalking, I mean, again, this was the 90s and the police did behave like that. Um, they did think, say, oh, um, are you not flattered? Yeah, yeah. And they did, you know, they did put him in the cell to scare him, but he came from a very nice family. So it was just, that was enough to kind of, enough to, to scare him. Um, but yeah, I was, and, and the mother, I was conflicted about putting the, I was I was worrying because I don't want to blame mm -hmm. mothers. In fact, someone challenged me on when I was writing the book. I wrote um, something happened to me on a train with some young lads, and I said, you know what? I said something really sexist, like um, 
what have their mothers taught them? And someone rightly challenged me and said, well, why is it the mothers and why not the fathers? And I was like, God, that is such internalised misogyny that I've just come out with, even though I'm doing a PhD in sexism. <laughs> um, but, you know, you have to just take it, don't you, and learn from it. And um, so, yeah. So why did you decide to leave in this line uh, that, you know, the police put him in the cell and rang his mother, who had no idea how any of this happened? Why did you decide to keep it in? Um, part of it because it was true. Yeah. Um, but I think it's, I don't know why I kept it, maybe because I am interested in that dynamic of, you know, there's often things in the book that teenagers are getting up to that their parents don't know about. I don't know. It's a really good question. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah. 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 Um, There's one last poem that I was wondering if you wanted to read. Um, it's the one on page 65. It's number 43. So it's pretty close to the end. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All the men I never married, number 43. When I open my ribs, a dragon flies out. And when I open my mouth, a sheep trots out. And when I open my eyes, silverfish crawl out and make for a place that's not mine. When I open my fists, two skylarks soar out. And when I open my legs, a horse scallops out. And when I open my heart, a wolf slips out and watches from beneath the trees. When I open my arms, a hare jumps out, and when I show you my wrists, a shadow cries out, and when I fall to my knees, a tiger stalks out and will not answer to me. Now that the beasts that lived in my chest have turned tail and fled, now that I'm open and the sky has come in and left me with nothing but space, now that I'm ready to lie like a cross and wait for the ghost of him to float clear away, will my wild things come back? Will the horse of my legs and the dragon of my ribs and the gentle sheep which lived in my throat and the silverfish of my eyes and the skylarks of my hands and the wolf of my heart, will they all come back and live here again now that he's left? Now I've said the word, whisper it, rape. Now I've said the word, whisper it, shame. Will my true ones, my wild, my truth, will my wild come back to me again? Thank you. This poem is so tonally different from all the others. Like it has this layer of myth to it. And I love where you took it. Yeah, the way that you put images to this feeling of what happens to us when so much of us has been chased out or shamed or curtailed or told off and I wonder in what ways you try and answer your own question right now that I've said the word whisper it rape now that I've said the word whisper it shame will my wild come back to me again uh, how do you carry that question into your life like how do you live with that question Yeah, it's it's, in, it's interesting reading the poem because that's another one I don't I don't read out after saying oh yeah the you know it's all kind of fenced away in the poems and it's all fine. There are <laughs> ones that I avoid. Um, interesting. Why, yeah. why is why is this one not one that you read? I think because of that ending because it's got that word in that I find so hard to say and <gasps> really this poem 
it's a kind of um it's a bridge between my first collection and this book so um my first collection has a sequence of poems about domestic violence in and this poem is talking about something that happened um in that time of my life which um yeah which um so I never kind of link them at readings and it's a very it feels like a very personal poem even though it's got a lot of this myth and animal imagery is probably the most true poem in the book can even truer than the ones when I say oh and this was about this guy that added me on Facebook this poem feels more true to me so um, maybe that's why I don't read it out um, um, yeah but I guess taking that question forward for me it's always I think it's about speaking out when I'm confronted with those moments of misogyny or actually choosing choosing when to speak out because you can't speak out all the time and you can't resist all the time because I think you just become exhausted and, and burnt out. So it's mm-hmm. um, trusting myself to speak out when I need to, but also recognising that there are other forms of resistance, which is, you know, I, I, I try and write about in the book, like the body resists, you know, sometimes mm-hmm. our body resists when we, we, we are not, we are kind of compliantly going along verbally and our body yeah. will kind of throw us out, you know, jump out of a taxi before. Um, yes. So there's this disconnect. Sometimes the body kind of saves you and you don't know. And um, sometimes you're saved both with words, with language, because you can kind of answer back. And sometimes silence is the only kind of recourse that you're left with. So that is the wild for me is is recognising those those things and also giving myself grace as well, like not being trying not to be hard on myself when I don't react in the perfect way you know yeah um, I think because I've got a daughter now she's three she's not you know she's a lot younger but um seeing her already starting to negotiate these things you know she she reminded me of me this morning because she said she didn't want to wear a skirt she wanted to wear trousers like the boys and I had this whole thing when I was younger that I wanted to be a boy not because I felt like a boy but because I understood and recognised that the boys got a better deal in life. And she yeah. just reminded me, she said, I don't want to wear a skirt, I want to wear trousers like my like, like her friend and then named him. So I just kind of swapped them over. But I think already those kind of gender awful binaries are already starting to happen. And, you know, those little comments, like someone said as we were walking past, she was, you know, she picked something and then she changed her mind. And this woman went, that's what women are like. They just change their minds. I'm like... Yes, sometimes oh. we do change our minds. <laughs> so like it's so kind of nonsensical, but also it's really powerful messages, yeah. isn't it? And she's getting those already, and she's only three, so it kind of breaks my heart. But um, yeah. yeah, do you feel like the therapy, as you said, you know, of, of writing this book has brought you any closer to knowing something you can help her with that you did not know growing up? Oh, God, yeah, definitely. Like, I've already started the whole... I mean, there's a big... I think there's a massive thing in America as well about, um, like, you know, this whole thing, and here as well, probably everywhere, of fathers, like, looking after and protecting their daughters' bodies, like, you know, this kind of guarding the virginity, which was so... It was massive, like, in my family, like... But I think the problem with that is if you are taking care of your daughter's body when she goes out into the world on her own, she's got no one to take care of it because she hasn't learnt to take care of it herself. And that's, you know, that's probably why some of the things happened to me that, that happened. Not, I'm not blaming my dad, but the idea that someone else will look after your body 
is a really dangerous one. So I've already started this, you know, and she's already very strong-willed. But, you know, I, the other day I was saying to her, even about food, I was saying, you decide what you want to put into your body because it's your body and you're in charge of it. And, you know, then it kind of bites me on the backside the next day when she won't eat anything and she's like it's my body i choose what i want to eat i'm like yeah i did say that to you you're right you know <laughs> but I, I, you know i'll suck it up because i think it's really important that, that that it is her body and she protects it and she decides is the author of four books. Her chapbook, or pamphlet, as the Brits say, If We Could Speak Like Wolves, winner of the 2011 Poetry Business Pamphlet Competition and shortlisted for the Lakeland Book of the Year Award. The Year of Falling, winner of the Jeffrey Faber Memorial Prize. All the Men I Never Married, and her prose debut, What the Trumpet Taught Me, which will come out in May. She has won an Eric Gregory Award, a Jeffrey Dearmer Prize, a Northern Promise Award, and residencies with the Ilkley Literature Festival and the Poetry School. She's one of the co-directors of the Kendall Poetry Festival and lives in Cumbria, England with her husband and their two-and-a-half-year-old daughter, Ali. To find out more, check out her website, kimmoore.co.uk. The music in this episode is by Todd Sikafus. I'm Helena de Groot, and this was Poetry Off the Shelf. Thank you for listening. <laughs>